All right, well, we're moving along in a sermon series where we're going through the book of Philippians, and uh, our, our series is titled Growing with Joy. Paul's desire was to mature this wonderful church in uh, Philippi, and it's good for us to mature as well, too, right? Um, so let's do that together. Last week, we looked at the mindset of the mature Christian. And a mature Christian is someone who lives in the already, not yet, um, with a mind that is focused on Christ. They're able to say, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we saw that this mindset, uh, that the Christian, because of this mindset, the Christian desires to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're kind of in that same section of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, And here Paul calls us to live with great unity. Let me ask you, within your church, within your home, within your school, within your workplace, are you a force for unity or disunity? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words that we just read, they sound too good to be true. They also perplex us. We don't quite know how to to fulfill them in our own lives. Thank you that you point us to your son, that in him we might see true humility, and that in him we might learn to live with great unity uh, here in Grace Church and wherever you lead us. Uh, May your spirit inform our minds and bring application to our hearts, we pray. Amen. Holy cow, what a presidential campaign we are having, and I can't even believe it. I don't don't know whether to laugh or cry. Let's be clear, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, uh, or if you even should vote. 
Well, let's at least admit, wow, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And I'm not just saying that our candidates are flawed, because every candidate who's ever run for office has his or her flaws. Now, I think, I think the biggest flaw is just the entire political process, the, the, the climate that we have in our society today. There's no civility left. It's all name-calling, full of vitriol. Can we not just disagree with on positions without demonizing the person? It used to not be so bad. Don't, let me tell you, don't, don't get the impression that I want to go back to the great glory days. But it didn't used to be so bad. Um, some of you were younger. Uh, unfortunately, you don't maybe have the, the memory of the early 80s. Great time, right? But do you remember, all those of you who do, uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill? You couldn't invent more opposite people, right? Hollywood actor, trickle-down conservatism uh, versus bleeding-heart liberal. Their policy goals were far apart. And yet the climate was quite different. Oh, sparks would fly, don't get me wrong. But they wouldn't demonize each other. In fact, they got along quite well, personally. That's pretty much how it was in the Senate and in the Congress. Senators and congressmen from both sides of the aisle, they fought hard for their closely held, held beliefs during the day. But then after work, because they were friends with people across the aisle, they would go out for drinks or dinner or a round of golf. For all their differences, there was a high degree of unity. But what's the solution to our deeply entrenched conflicts? Just be a little nicer, is that the word? I don't know if that's going to work. It cannot simply be a call to go back to the good old days because there was a lot back then that wasn't so good. <laughs> then how can there be unity on earth? Some people will, will push for more education. If we could just pressure the other side with more convincing argument. In other words, we must conquer upon the battlefield of beliefs. Then there will be Unity. I hope you see that's a losing proposition. Paul gives us the only solution for unity on earth. But his words aren't directed at America. They're directed at a fledgling church in the ancient city of Philippi. But they could just as easily be directed at us here this morning. Now, I don't think we have a unity problem here at Grace Church, but there's always room for growth, right? And Paul's words can be more preventative medicine than a cure for what ails us. You know, it doesn't take much for a church to become divided. It only takes just a couple of people out of a hundred to start bickering over things, and like how to run a particular church program or which missionary to support. Churches have fought and split up over the pettiest of issues. Now, Paul must have received word that there were some disagreements brooding in Philippi. We don't know all the details. We do know that later in the letter, he will single out two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and exhort them to, to get along in the Lord, along with the rest of the members there in Philippi. We don't know the problem. And do we really need to know the problem? We just need to look into our own selfish, opinionated hearts to see that the 
seeds of disunity are deep within. Paul tells us of the solution that God gives us. Look at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. God has given his people the body of Christ, the mind of Christ. We simply need to receive and appropriate it. Because we have the mind of Christ, we are to live the way of Christ in unity. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to see that the, the way of Christ is attractive, the way of Christ is difficult, and then the way of Christ is significant. First, the way of Christ is attractive. You know, attractiveness is seen throughout the, this whole passage, but let's primarily look at verses 1 and 2. Paul here is an excellent communicator. We see that in how he begins verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. You know, he could have begun with the words since, right? Because these are things that all Christians share, these four realities. Instead, he begins with a conditional clause. So if there is any, what is he doing? He wants the Philippians to conduct an inventory. If there's any encouragement in Christ, check. Comfort from his love, check. Participation in the Spirit, well, yes, check. Affection and sympathy, check. Paul wants us to take an inventory of the beauty that is ours in Christ Jesus and see that it is so attractive. A beauty that is perfect and full and inexhaustible in the Lord Jesus Christ. A beauty that is fully ours as members of the body of Christ. Paul wants the church in Philippi to take inventory of the blessings that they share in Christ. And this is a good exercise for us too. As Christians, we can fall into reclusive pity parties. We get angry or upset because someone just didn't do things how we wanted them to do. Or we feel like they didn't respond properly to our obvious needs. So we withdraw, we demonize, and we justify our moping and our fruitlessness. What brings this all about? Well, we inventory the wrong things. Instead of inventory, the beautiful, inventorying the beautiful blessings that we share as Christians, we inventory all the hurts that we've experienced in the past. We inventory how others have more than us. We inventory how alone we are. We inventory other people's motives as if we can actually figure them out. Do you see this tendency in you? Do you see why it's important that we undergo the inventory that Paul lists for us? See, the way of Christ is the way of encouragement, comfort, love, affection, and sympathy. It flows from the divine goodness of his mind into his body, the church. It's only after we remind ourselves of the attractiveness of belonging to the body of Christ that we're now able to powerfully put into practice what Paul lists in verse 2. 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 1, Paul reminds us of the beauty that the gospel brings into our lives. And in verse 2, he says, live it out. Live it out. Now, the term that Paul, uh, that, uh, Paul uses is being of same mind, of one mind. What does he mean by that? Well, ten times in this short letter of Philippians, Paul mentions, uh, uses the word like-mindedness or same mind. And when he says this, Paul is not saying um, agree on everything. He's not saying stop being Republican, stop being a Democrat. See, the beauty of the gospel is that it has power to unite people who disagree on many of life's issues. Like-mindedness goes way beyond the intellectual. It incorporates the will and the emotions. Paul is saying that the members of the Christian community must share a common attitude, this same mind. And he spells it out in verses 5 through 11. But for now, let's just realize that he calls us to have a unity of mind. Be committed as a church to desire and pursue unity. You know, as I was preparing the sermon the other day, I was listening to an uh, um, acoustic guitar playlist on Spotify. And uh, this song came up right as I was working on this, on this point. It's a song by Ron Comey. And it's titled, United We Stand. It's true. When the body of Christ is united because we are of one mind, we stand. But where there is disunity and dysfunction, um, we fall. <coughs> Grace Church, are we committed to being of the same mind? Having been lavished with the love of Christ, are we committed to having the same love for one another? We cannot be satisfied with half measures. If we're to live out our calling on the East End, then we must be of full accord. We must be of one mind. You see, there's a great beauty when people walk this way. When people from various disparate backgrounds and incomes and cultures gather together with one mind, that is attractive in our community. So I hope you see that the way of Christ is attractive and therefore we are to walk in his ways in unity with the same mind as a church here. But we must also see that the way of Christ is difficult. With just a few words, Paul levels us. He opens our eyes to the reality that our corporate unity is threatened by our individual pridefulness and self-centeredness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others what? More significant than yourselves. That sounds pretty difficult. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why does Paul write these words? Because all of the members of that church in Philippi, and all of us here, if we would but admit it, are saddled with pride and its modus operandi, selfish ambition and conceit. 
Selfish ambition declares, I'm everything, while conceit says, you're nothing. See, the problem in the world isn't liberals or conservatives. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And thankfully, the gospel helps us to see that we are born with hearts that beat for self. Selfish ambition and conceit come naturally to us. And even as Christians who've been given new hearts that truly beat for God, we can be prone to selfish ambition and conceit. We can even do church work this way. And you know, all this has to do with significance. We're made in God's image for significance. and We've lost that and we yearn for it. That's why Paul writes at the end of verse 3, he says, In humility count others, what? More significant than yourselves. We all long for significance. We seek for it in all sorts of improper places. We can even seek it at the expense of others. So Paul says, do nothing. He says, do nothing from a, from a, in life, from a position of self-imposed false significance. Instead, do everything in humility. Now, we tend to like this word humility. We kind of like it, right? We like to use the word humility. Uh, It kind of has positive sense in our modern ears. But back in Paul's day, not even close. It had extremely negative connotations in Paul's day. It meant lowly-mindedness. It carried the connotation of being low, insignificant, weak, or poor. Lowly-mindedness in Paul's day was nothing to aspire towards. And yet, Paul uses that word. So instead of our somewhat glorified word, humility, maybe we should use the word humiliation instead. In humiliation, count others more significant than yourselves. And not just people like you. And not just people that you get along with. This is the Trump supporters, counting Hillary supporters, as more significant than themselves. And vice versa. I told you this would be difficult. Then Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Christian, understand this. I know at times you feel beat up. There's all these things you've got to do. You need to understand that, remember from earlier in in this letter, um, that God began a good work in you, and he will carry it on to completion? Remember that? You're you're taking part of God's good work. Being here today is a part of God working a good work in you and carrying it on to completion. Understand this, the person whom God is making you to be is one who values other more than self. That is who God is working you into. He's transforming you into that person. A person who cares for others' interests every bit as much as your own. Let me ask you, in all honesty, is this the person you're becoming? By God's grace, are you becoming more and more one who views others this way? Because check this out. Without such a mind for others, there will always be disunity wherever you go. Does that make sense? Unity cannot take place when people approach others from a position of superiority. 
Unity can only happen when people gather with the same mind to count others more significant. Now, before we can even begin to do this well, we need to look to Christ. Paul shows us Christ's voluntary self-humiliation in verses 5 through 8. This is one of the most loveliest... That's bad grammar. This is, the, <laughs> this is likely the most loveliest uh, uh, statement in all the scriptures. Let's read it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to give us a glimpse of Jesus' mind up in heaven before he even left heaven to come to earth to take on flesh. Have this mind among you, uh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind of Christ. It's beautiful. It's hard to fathom. I don't know why he did it. Why would he leave heaven to come down here? I don't know. If it was me, I I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) Trust me. Yes. (laughs) Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. My friends, the thoughts and attitudes and ways of Christ are yours. Why? Because God has given you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in the body of Christ. So we're simply to appropriate what is rightfully ours, the mind of Christ. And so Paul gives us insight into the mind of our Savior. In verse 6 through 8, Paul helps us to see Christ's mind. What would cause God himself to willingly leave heaven Become a man who lives and dies for sinful man. Well, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, when asked by God the Father to take on human form and redeem fallen man, the Son thought what? Well, it shows us, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's amazing. You know, I can't help but think of the first man who walked on the earth. That first Adam. What was his sin? It was pride. He desired to have a life of significance that God had not given him. He wanted more than what God had provided him to have. Adam wanted to be God. Adam grasped, you see, Adam grasped at what? The divinity of God. A man made in God's image with great significance thought of himself as more significant than what God had given him, so he grasped at equality with God. But Christ, whom Paul calls elsewhere the second Adam, came from heaven. He grasped not at his divinity that was eternally his, but he what? Verse 7, he emptied himself. This word empty is a Greek word, kanao. Uh, from that, the theologians get this phrase, the, the kenosis of Christ, the, the emptying of Christ. And they question, what did he empty himself of? And, and some want to say that he emptied himself of all his divine attributes. 
But then if that was the case, then he ceased being God when he became man. And we know that Christ is both fully God and fully man in the flesh as he walked this earth and as he now reigns in heaven. So when Paul writes that Christ emptied himself, we need to understand a few things. First, before his incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ held the highest position possible. He was in what? The form of God. That's the way he's just saying. He's God. This, this wouldn't make any sense if he wasn't, right? Uh, he's the God who created all things and rules over all things. The second element of Christ's self-emptying is that he did not insist on his rights. He did not g- grasp at his divine prerogatives. Sounds astounding. We pretty much grasp at everything that we think is rightfully ours, and we don't want to lose it, no matter what. (laughs) The third element of Christ's self-emptying involved his going to the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, all beaten and battered and bloodied, the last thing he looked like was God. He hardly even looked like a man. And so the self-emptying of Christ must be viewed from the vantage, not of what Jesus subtracted, but rather what he added. Look again at verse 7 again. But emptied himself by what? By taking. Rather than subtracting from his divinity, Jesus added humanity to his deity. His divinity took on three things. He took on the form of a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. It means a slave. He took on the likeness of mankind. He was found in human form. He took on the obedience in which the first Adam, and you and I, by the way, have failed. And in his obedience, he took on himself the punishment that we deserve, even the cross. You know, there's a lot of different religions on earth. There's this modern way of looking at religions today where everyone just wants to lump them all into one big basket. People pridefully say, you know, all the religions are the same. They all lead to the same God. They say Christianity is just too exclusive. It's based on an exclusive truth claim that there's only one way to God. And so they say that can't be true. If there is a God, there must be many ways and paths to him. And then they'll even conclude that the fact that there are so many different religions out there, that there must be, therefore, many paths to God. But not so fast. Three things. First, yes, Christianity is an exclusive truth claim. There is but one God, and there's one way to him. That's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, if you say that Christianity is wrong because it holds to an exclusive truth claim, know this, your position is itself an exclusive truth claim. You're saying God must be approachable by many paths. That in itself is an exclusive truth claim. And it's just as exclusive as the Christian one. And third, maybe the reason why there are so many religions 
isn't that there's multiple paths back to God. Maybe the reason why there's so many paths is that we're so lost and we don't know what to do. Let me change direction here. Christianity is unlike any other religion on earth. All other religions say, here is the path to work your way back up to God. Only Christianity says, sorry, that's impossible. But cheer up. God has worked his way down to you. That's what Paul is helping us see in verses 5 through 8. These amazing verses show us the mind of Christ, his amazing love for sinners, his willingness to to say, I'm gone, I'm out of here, I'm going down. Nothing's going to stop me. I consider these broken, fallen human beings more significant than me, the Son of God. See how beautiful God is? These verses tell us wonderful things about the character of God and and the, the amazing degree of his love towards us. What kind of God would voluntarily leave the infinite glory of heaven to dwell in a sin-stained world surrounded by quarreling sinful man? Not the God of the Greeks or the Romans. But our minds can't really process it, can we? It boggles us. C.S. Lewis says it's like trying to imagine yourself being a slug or a crab. Here, though, we see the, the mind of God in operation. It tells us something about God's character. If you understand what Paul is telling us about God here, your amazement for God, your love for God, your desire to worship and praise him will grow and blossom. See, God was able to let go of glory because God, unlike us, doesn't cling to glory. God was able to empty himself because God is, by nature, a self emptying God. This isn't God 2.0, right? This is who God is. He's always been this way. He overflows with self-emptying. Understand this. The decision to become human and live and die for our rescue and redemption was not a decision to stop being divine. No, it was a decision that reveals to us what it really means to be divine. When you look at the cross, find there the true meaning for who God is. He is the God of self-giving. He is the God who, by nature, doesn't even grasp at his own glory. He is a God who counted others, that is man, made in his image, more significant than himself. This is the mind 
of Christ. So overflowing with love and generosity that he loses, loses his grip on the glory of heaven so that he could grasp fallen man. Oh, that we would have the mind of Christ. Well, scripture says we have it already. <laughs> so better it's pray that better maybe to pray that we would appropriate that which is already ours in Christ Jesus. Consider the peace and the unity we would be able to bring to this church, to the east end of Long Island. What a beautiful proposition. Well, it's attractive. And yet, honestly, it is difficult. Day in and day out, something within us still grasps for glory and significance that only belongs to God. Something still within us continues to cry, I'm everything and you're nothing. Which is why we need to hear the last point. The way of Christ is significant. You know, the human condition is a lifelong search for significance. And the problem that all humanity shares is that we're born looking for significance in all the wrong places. Sounds like a country western song, doesn't it? And our pride prevents us from humbling ourselves low enough to receive um, the solution of significance. See, we're originally created by God to experience and reflect his glory. But ever since the first Adam grasped after glory and significance that God alone possessed, all humanity after Adam is left searching for significance in everything but God. This is why pride is such a problem with us. With selfish ambition, we chased after things in life that we think will yield us significance in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. And we do so at the expense of others. And because of this, these last few verses must become for us honey on our lips. See, this passage isn't just about God becoming man. It's also about us becoming significant. This passage doesn't end with verse 8. Verses 9 through 11 help us answer the what about me question. See, if I manifest this kind, this mind of Christ, if I really do live in humility, then what about my fear of being insignificant? If I yield my rights so that others may benefit, then people will think that I'm weak. If I develop a mind of Christ, then people will just walk all over me. People will consider me feeble and lame. I will be worth less in the eyes of others, not more. Paul wants us to see where humility has taken Christ. And if we see where it has taken Christ, we will recognize where humility will take us as well. And it's there we find our significance. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who lived in 
humiliation on earth is now highly exalted in heaven. His worth and his significance are boundless. The glory's been restored. But know this too, all who belong to Christ will one day share in that glory with Christ. Jesus doesn't hog his glory in heaven. Remember his prayer in John 17 where he longed to return to heaven so that he could return to glory, but that that he could also share that glory with all who trust in him. See, our significance doesn't come from things within this broken world, but from Christ who gladly bestows honor and glory to all who bow a knee to him. So for now, we suffer. Yes, we're misunderstood. We're ridiculed, we're mocked for our humility. We are stepped on and over. But Jesus said what? It's the meek who inherit the earth. Remember, meekness is not weakness. It's what? Strength under control. Jesus said to he who humbles himself will be exalted. His half-brother James writes, God gives grace to the humble. Psalm 138.6 says, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. This is how God operates. Which is why our searching for significance apart from him is fool's gold. We were made by God for significance and to find our significance in him. God stooped from heaven to bring us back into that significant glory that that is now rightfully ours in Christ Jesus. He alone makes us worthy. Do you see what the mind of Christ does for us? I just want to finish on this one point. It yields two things simultaneously in our lives that cannot happen otherwise. (laughs) A great significance simultaneously with a great humility. Those things rarely go hand in hand, do they? But the gospel brings us into our life. See, the Christian has been given the most glorious significance. Why? Because it's a significance that only God can give. It's a significance that we can't create. And because we recognize this, something else tremendous takes place. It works within us a great humility. We, we know that we don't deserve all that God has given us. And so we, we no longer see ourselves as more significant than others. Nor can we any longer just look out for our own interests. For we have the same love that is in Christ Jesus flowing through our hearts. See, with the mind of Christ fully operational, the Christian is simultaneously full of significance, and full of humility. Do you see why now that it's only with this mind of Christ that we can, people can live in, humil- live in unity? There's no other way. It's only when we stop grasping for significance and rest in the significance God gives us that we're able to stop saying, I'm everything. And it's only with the humility that God gives us that we're able to stop saying, you're nothing. See, that is what the cross tells us. On the cross, the Son of God declared, I'll be nothing so that you can be everything. 
And so we, in love for Christ, with the desire to honor him on, here on earth, we share his mind. We now live with the attitude, I'll be nothing so that others can be everything. No, this is difficult. Maybe not only desire this beauty in our lives, maybe live it by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you love this way, that your character is a character that overflows with grace and mercy and love. You are not a God who holds tightly to your glory. You are the God who empties himself so that we may be um, made full. May this permeate our minds. May our minds be um, invaded by the mind of Christ. And may we not worry about this for our neighbors. May we worry about it for ourselves. And may you work this great work in us, Jesus. May we glory in you. May we find our significance in you. And may that produce in us a great humility, that, a humility that works um, unity in your body, we pray. Amen.